This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. The pursuit of business growth often intertwines with the realm of venture capital and external capital raising. As businesses evolve, there's a need not only for strategic injections of funds, but also valuable expertise and industry connections. Selecting the right investors becomes a crucial decision. Business owners must consider factors beyond monetary considerations. Compatibility of vision and values is paramount, ensuring a harmonious partnership where both parties are aligned in their goals. How can you strike the balance between preserving the essence of your business and being receptive to the investor's insights and advice? In today's episode of The Bottom Line, we had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Higgins, the co-founder and CEO of Lupin, a SaaS platform and professional services company that drives car subscription management and billing solutions for automakers, dealerships, and startups. Michael takes us through the journey of how Lupin started and the decision behind pursuing venture capital as a growth strategy. You'll learn about the nuanced process of raising external capital, find out about the importance of an investor's role in your business, and you'll hear Michael share valuable lessons when building relationships with investors. Let's dive in. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bottom Line today. Thanks for taking the time, Savan. For those who don't know you, can you please tell us a little about yourself? I'm Michael Higgins. I'm a managing director and co-founder of Lupit Mobility. Now, obviously, we did a lot of research on Looper today. You have a very interesting business and a very interesting name. Tell us about Looper. What does it do? What problem does it solve? And so on. Just give us the lowdown. We play in a space called uh, vehicle subscription or general mobility. It plays into these tailwinds of usage of vehicles over ownership in the market. So the idea that consumers could pay an all-inclusive weekly or monthly fee and they can take a car for a day, a week, a month, a year, and they can change and upgrade and they can downgrade according to their life's needs and changes. This is a global trend that's growing very quickly. What we do at Loopit is well, we're a software as a service business. And so we provide a consumer experience and billing platform to companies in this space. And so Companies in this space would be companies like car manufacturers, car dealerships, rental car offerings, and specific mobility type firms like energy firms as well. And so we provide all their infrastructure in the back end. So um, basically, you never would have heard of us. So if you do subscribe to a car or use any style of subscription, most likely the company that you're dealing with uses Lupin in the back end. Where did the inspiration for it come? So you obviously went down the tech world and the the SaaS and build the back end for it, in a way enabling bigger companies to provide this service. So where did that idea come? And did you ever go, hey, let's just go get a fleet of cars ourselves and go the full circle of things? 
Well, actually, that's where we started. So my background is originally in the automotive space, and we started off as a online car dealership. And so we would sell, this is pre-COVID, and we would sell cars online, deliver to your door, money-back guarantee, inspections and everything like that under a brand company called Hello Cars. It was going quite well and it was growing. We're getting very frustrated by the one-time relationship that we're having with consumers. So the fact that we would invest really heavily in this nice experience for a consumer and getting a consumer to buy a car online, especially pre-COVID, that's quite an investment. And they'd love us, but then at the end of it, if we're really lucky, you might see them again in four or five years. And so that really frustrated us. Now, we'd heard about this concept of vehicle subscription, and this is general usage of ownership trend in the auto space. We'd heard of it out of parts of Western Europe, the US, different parts of Asia as well. And we liked the concept. And so we did a lot of research. You know, take your pick on Bain, Boston Consulting, Kinsey. You know, most will say that they believe it's you know, 10 to 40% of the market by 2030. So great tailwinds there. So what we did is we trialed it out as a bolt-on to our online dealership. And so we utilized our existing customer flow, our funnel. And very quickly, we had about 100 cars out on the road within three months. And the margins made sense. The demand was there. It made a lot of sense to the business. Uh, we really liked it. And so before we kind of went head first, really deep into this concept, we kind of wound ourselves back a bit and said, well, okay, we, we like the space. This is where we want to be. But I think a really important question is, who do we think is going to win? And I'm not necessarily of the belief that a startup is the one that's going to win, you know, the consumers and businesses' hearts and minds in this space. I'm of the belief and aware of the belief that those who are going to win are the ones who have access to vehicles, distribution, and capital. And so what I mean by that is car manufacturers, car dealers, and rental car offerings, and, and a few different others. And so if they're going to win, what do they need to win? And to win, they need knowledge to get themselves up and running in these offerings, and they need a scalable software solution or infrastructure so they can run it you know, efficiently and scale it effectively. And so out of that, Looper was born. We were our first owned client with our Hello Cars business. The people there were very kind at all the early bugs that we had in dealing with that. And then Hello Cars gave us credibility into the small dealership market. Small gave us credibility into large dealership market. That gave us, you know, there was essentially a snowball into car manufacturers, rental firms, and, and it's gone from there. And so we still actually keep uh, Hello Cars business. We keep it just in Sydney, whereas a lot of the other businesses, you know, APAC and, and the US and UK, currently it's a very good sandbox environment for us. So we really kind of deeply understand the problems that our clients are going through. But at the same time, we're also quite conscious of not making it too big so our clients would ever view it as a competitor. I actually like that because you get a real life feedback, you get to see the problems as they arise and the, and the market will change over time as people get used to it, but you'll get live data. Whereas sometimes your customers are either reluctant to give you the feedback or you have to dig really deep to get it to be able to make change, especially for a software company that needs to be on the forefront of technology and development. So tell us about your development process. I mean, obviously don't give us the secret sauce recipe or anything like that. Was it a difficult back end to build? Did you have to build a lot of new parts to it or was it just stitching up a lot of what's available and really putting it together that makes sense? Parts of it is stitching. You know, parts of it is stitching software. We do a lot of our product of things that help look after our clients' interests and reduce their risks. So 
So we do things like ID verification, biometric scans. We connect with credit check providers, things like those. So those are naturally out there and it's essentially creating APIs accordingly. But although there was a very significant amount of building in actually the core platform and the core offering to get that up and running, having good, strong early team and then a product working very well with engineering has been really a core focus for us. So tell us the difference between sort of subscription model of owning a car, let's call it the word owning, or subscription model of owning a car versus just hiring a car. What are the differences and who are the customers that are actually subscribing to cars? Structurally, there's probably a lot of similarities. You, with a rental, you pick it up, but rentals are often quite generic by nature, whereas one end of the spectrum, you'll have a rental, which is generally, you know, a day to two weeks. You're taking a car that fits a function, but generally speaking, not much more. So, you know, I want a medium SUV. It's a Hyundai Tucson or similar. Quite generic by nature, which is which is fine when your car is serving only a function or a purpose. On the other end, you have traditional ownership where people are very specific on what pack they get in their car and every specific color, and it's very detailed in its nature. Where subscription really lies in the middle, and so like rental, it's an all-inclusive offering. Actually, no, Sweet Fair rental often isn't all-inclusive. There's lots of kind of add-ons, but subscription is included. You'll have registration, servicing, insurance, everything kind of bundled, and you just pay a, a monthly or a weekly fee, and you can upgrade and change and downgrade. So let's say I, a Toyota Corolla is suitable for me this week, but then I find out my wife is pregnant, and I'm going to need a bigger car quite shortly. Well, it's not this big deal. You just change a car to a larger car. Or if you want to get a convertible because you're going away for a trip for a while, then that's fine too. And so what it does is it just gives consumers incredible flexibility. And on the other side, we're seeing a a very fastest growing segment is the business to business offerings. And so this is where a company, let's call it Joe's Plumber. I've actually uh, got a new contract that I'm going to need six cars for the next eight months. What do you do for eight months? You don't get a lease because leases are longer than that. Rental is going to cost you a bomb. And so it kind of sits in that middle of space there. Is it hard to find customers? Because I feel like, but I don't know the industry that well, I would feel like you've built this software that enables car manufacturers and or car dealerships and all these bigger businesses to get off their butt and to potentially create this income stream or service offering. Do you have to go around knocking on doors going, hey, I've got a great business idea and I've got the software and they're like, has your software come at a time where it's maybe too early for the, do you know what I mean? Or is it a match made in heaven? How are you managing that? Because I'm trying to think, Owen, you've got such a good platform. Are the dealers or the people that have the fleets or whatever it is, are they ready? Or how are you finding the sales and the business development side of things? The answer is both. So when you're in our space, Every major firm is thinking or looking at doing something like this, or they're already doing it. Some have been running offerings for probably up to eight years now, some of our clients. And so some of them is just about going, okay, well, we just need the best software. And we go, well, we're the best software in our view, but in most people's view, we're the best software. Great. But then there will be other ones who who are new to this space and they go, look, we've been thinking about it. We want to get in, but we don't really know how. And so that's where... It's a lot of a bit of an education piece for a subset of our client base where we go, okay, well, great. Well, we'll help you get from zero to one as well, as well as providing your software company. You know what I reckon? I'm a big car fan and this is kind of off topic. I was just thinking, 
I love luxury cars. What is that luxury? Like, you know, a Lamborghini, which is probably not a Lamborghini, but a Ferrari or a Porsche or a Lamborghini. Like those really cars that in order to drive them, you've got to spend, you know, 500 grand, 400 grand Australian. And bloody cars are expensive in Australia. But I would pay a thousand bucks a month to drive a very fancy car for four hours a month on a weekend. And I'd pay that. Like, do you reckon there's a, I know you mentioned Camry and a, and a few of the sort of small, you know, more day-to-day cars. I just see this subscription model being really, really powerful in that higher end market. Have you seen that trend? Yeah, look, I use Camry because it's, exa- it's a relatable example. But yeah, we see really kind of extreme. So ultimately, like, call us agnostic. For us, it's about, we, we help people, companies get up and running and run their businesses efficiently. And they choose what niche or what part of the market that really suits their skill set or their their structures or whatever it is they feel gives them a competitive advantage in that space. And so some will be going, okay, no, I'm going with absolute part of the market where it's just uh, people affordability and people just want transport. And that's fine, right? And it's just about providing a function and providing a car to get them from A to B. But then on the other end, yeah, we see some pretty extravagant and out there cars on the platform, you know, some pretty crazy fun stuff. You know, there's a subset of society that go, look, this is for me. I love it. And maybe they get bored of their Lamborghini, you know what I mean? And so they go, okay, fine, I'm going to change it. And so essentially they'll pay a premium accordingly for that. But they don't really mind because I guess how many health are you really using your Lambo? Setting up, starting a subscription software business, I'm sure doesn't come cheap. And one of the things you did at Lupert was obviously you needed to raise capital. And one of the things I wanted to dive deep into as a business owner, Michael, is all businesses need some form of capital, depending on whether the owners put that in or it's such a significant amount that you go to the market. Tell us about I know you've raised money recently. Can you tell us your story about the need for raising capital and how it's sort of linked to not only building the software backend, but what was the money used for from a growth perspective? And do you want to sort of share that story for us? Probably also things worth touching into the raising capital, that there's money for the sake of money, but then there's also, if you have the right investors, what a value add do they provide to your business too, which I think is a really kind of a really worthwhile discussion point, which people I would say is underrated or not discussed as much. So we got to a point where we, you know, we started off very early in our own finances, family and family and friends very early. Our first external round was a seed round. So we raised, uh, I think at the time it was 3.6 million at the time. We were led by a firm called, they're called Title Ventures. They're based out of Sydney, Australia. Very strong product-led growth focus. And for us, we really valued the product side, especially as, you know, that, that's such a core part of our SaaS offering. And so one of the, who is now a board member with us, I believe he was head of product for, uh, I think it was Alassian or one of the main products at Alassian. So it's a very strong background there that really allowed us to level up and provide a real value add to us. Now, regarding the process, interesting process, you can read a lot of stuff about this, but, you know, it's a, there's no perfect way to go about this, is there? I don't think there's a perfect way of going, if you do X, you will raise Y. You know what I mean? It'd be nice if it was, but it doesn't really play out that way, or at least in my experience, it doesn't play out that way. What we viewed it as a really important point is we learned early on to view it as a sales funnel or a sales pipeline. And so, okay, well, I'm looking to raise X and we'll go into what we're going to spend it on and how it'll add value to our business and grow our business. But 
the actual experience and the process for us was, you know, it was new to us to, at the time, it was, you know, but we'd, we'd never raised external capital before. Quite daunting, you know, at the first time. And then you you also got those individual pieces like, oh, have I got something worth raising for? You know, I believe so. Now, we weren't very quickly that we do. We do have something worth raising on. SaaS is also uh, universally a relatively liked space because of the scalable nature of it. Thinking about it as a pipeline is where it's really quite valuable. I think it's very easy to go, okay, oh, this investor is showing interest or I know someone's showing interest and then just kind of hang your hat down that process. Because the actual process of raising funds, is, you know, it's incredibly time-consuming. It's a full-time role in itself, incredibly stressful. I was talking to some other funded startups recently and they joked like you can you can tell when a founder's going through a startup a raise because they'll either be either losing weight or putting on weight. <laughs> or losing their hair. Yeah, or all three, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's just a challenging. We were very clear at the beginning, Kane. We chose companies that we think thought made sense and we targeted them accordingly. And then we pitched quite a lot. I don't know the numbers. You know, you always hear about founders going, I did 10,000 pitches. I can't remember the number, but it was a very significant amount at the time. Ultimately, what was quite interesting, one of my takeaways, since learned and I really believe in, investors invest in lines, not dots. When you kind of come out there and go, ta-da, look at this amazing product I've got and look at all the things I've done and I'm amazing. That's great. There's a lot of value in that. A lot of companies have done some really great things with that. But what I learned was there's a lot of value in meeting investors earlier on and saying, hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Here's what we're doing right now. We're going to be raising capital in a bit, but here's what we're doing right now and here's how we're thinking about executing on it. Often they're actually pretty good at just giving you their opinions. But what's very powerful is uh, you say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Here's how I'm thinking of going about it. And then six months later, you go, I did it. And now here's what we're going to do next. But to do what we do next, we're now looking at raising capital. And so it increases your credibility quite significantly there because you've been known to them. Perhaps you provided updates along the way. And so we had several term sheets in our first round, which is a really, you know, very great position to be in. But they were from companies that we had spoken to ongoing from a relatively early stage. I'd say for those out there who are going, I haven't done that and I need to raise now. I don't think it's the end of the world. I'm just saying if you have the option to plan and kind of seed this offering and seed it and kind of do it over time, that's how I would go about it. For us, it's been quite successful. But there's a strong credibility element there that it attaches. We've been involved with a lot of our clients in helping them with cap raises or, you know, assisting the marketing agency or the, the agency that's going to be helping them with the cap raise around the finance element and the financials. But investors are very good at telling you what gaps they see and why they're not investing. And what generally happens is when you go to raise capital and you're desperate to need the money at the time because you need the money to go to the next stage, you find there are gaps. And sometimes what can happen is, is you don't have the money to keep going to fill the gaps or there's some shortages there. So my question was going to be around, were investors forthcoming with where they saw the gaps and were able to mitigate them? But You've done it differently. You've actually spoken to them way early so that you got that feedback as to what motivates them and what they're looking to see and then you can actually do it. So did that just happen because you were looking to raise money early on or is this something you were advised at the outset to do? The scenarios that played out were we were an interesting company in a specific space and so several firms early on were saying, hey, let's chat. I just want to clarify, just because the firm says let's chat doesn't mean you're amazing. 
it's their responsibility to constantly have their own pipeline. And so it's important that you, that you understand that as well when you're when you're going through this process. Is that whilst you you've got to build a pipeline and get a funnel, they've got their own pipeline of funnel that they're doing, right? So just because someone's speaking to you doesn't make doesn't make you special. I hope that doesn't come off as harsh. No, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then hence why you speak to so many people because the conversion would be not high and you'd speak to a lot of people. Probably a good point though. Like why we spoke to a lot of these firms though, like sometimes we were just asking for advice. I think founders feel like they always have to have all the answers when it's just not realistic. Your business isn't a perfect thing. It's never going to be perfect. Investors like adding value. If they see an area that they believe they can uniquely add value, they will love that. That's a great thing. And so I think that's an area as well that I kind of, I guess I'm looking back in my own head when we first started, I'm like, oh gosh, we need to be perfect before we can raise money. And it's, it's not true. You have to get to a certain standard. You have to have a certain amount of traction. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be a perfect business. You just need, you're open to saying like, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing great. These areas I'm not 100% sure on. It'd be great to get your thoughts on. People are pretty open about it. Pretty pretty helpful, I found. Can I ask sort of what were the needs for the money? So when you obviously went seed round one or post family and friends sort of offering, was that to go to market or was that to strengthen the back end of the software? What was the purpose of the funds? Multiple things. So we were early in market, but we were in market. What it did is it allowed us to create a significantly more depth to our product that has made us a, you know, a real world-beating product and a, a leader in our space. And what it also did is it allowed us entrance to our first market outside of ANZ, which was the UK. So tell us about the international market. Obviously, you do have presence overseas. Is that part of your growth strategy? I know the US is big for you guys and the UK. Tell us about the plan forward and are we going to see Looper take on the world? I think you will. The goal of Lupert isn't to be everywhere. The goal is to power many successful offerings, quietly probably. <laughs> so yes, we plan to take on the world and we're currently doing it. And I think we're executing accordingly. When we first started, we thought we could build this great business in Australia and New Zealand, and we can. But what we saw is just the demand overseas is so much, so significant. It's Australian population now, I think it's 25 million circa. You know, the, the American population, I think it's circa 380 million now. It's dramatic in its size. And so, yes, UK is a market for us, but we've actually found very disproportionate pull out of the US. We kind of got pulled into the US because of our product quality, which is really good. Still means you have to execute and make sure that uh, you're doing everything right to serve our client base and actually really doing what they need. That's been really a real core is going, that's a real differential in our product is going, we're not doing things that look good. We're doing things that to solve problems in our clients' lives that actually create their efficiencies. You know, our clients, we're a B2B firm and it's not about being sexy. It's about going, what problems do we solve so we can help them be more efficient and how can we make them scale? And if we can do that, then we scale. Tell us about the journey for you guys in terms of investors coming on board. You said you had a board. Beauties of capital raising is getting people that can also assist post money, as in their intellect. Do you now have to change the way you operate your business in reporting to investors, having to create a board? And how has that journey been for you, Michael? It formalizes it up. It formalizes it significantly. I think it just adds to the maturity of a firm. You know, there's a line of making it so heavy that it's bureaucratic, which I think is very important not to do. But I think there's a lot of value in formalizing it and getting your business 
to a standard in these areas. And so, yes, it is more formal now. In certain areas, we will discuss it in the board, especially things that are strategic. But at the same time, we found investors to be incredibly helpful. They're very helpful because best supporters, right? It's their responsibility. Obviously, you know, sorry, mom and dad, but you know, like the, they have a very vested interest in ensuring your success because it's their success as well. And so they're very helpful in going, here's areas, who can we introduce you to? How can we help? Right. It's not this kind of, I don't know, at least in my experience, it's not this, you know, faceless boogeyman handing out money. You know what I mean? It's this very kind of collaborative experience. Don't get me wrong. Due diligence is a rough thing to do and going through that process is hard. But once it's kind of on board, I found it's been a very supportive process. And if you could talk to an entrepreneur that was building a business that eventually needed to raise capital, what would be your sort of number one tip? I've already said it, but I'm a very, very big believer in lines, in investors investing in lines, not dots. Actually going, meeting people early and ongoing for the time that you're eventually going to raise. I think that's one piece. And then the second piece is just understanding and learning. What do they care about? So you've got things that you care about and what you want to be. But if you're in the space, so we're in SaaS space, learn metrics that are SaaS metrics. Learn how your business will be evaluated so that when the time comes for that evaluation or an investment committee meeting, you know that's the meeting where a, a fund will decide whether they invest in you or not. You've got all the ammo and they've got the ammo. So essentially you're aligning what you're trying to achieve there. Now we can't let you go without getting a little bit of an insight in what you think the world is going to look like in years to come. So what do you think the future will be of cars and, you know, all the things that's happening with electric, self-driving? Do you see subscription be, you go on an app, press a button, and instead of an Uber driver coming, you have a nice fancy car, you get in the back, it's self-driving. Where do you see this mobility and automotive technology go to, you know, in the future? Yeah, it's a really interesting space. Outrageous amounts of money being invested in, in every which way you look at, at this area. I guess I use the word mobility, you know, which can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But mobility is just how people get from A to B and how they go about it. And so subscription in our view is one slice of the mobility pie. Today, it's almost quite static by nature. You've got cars and I own it and I'll own it for probably five years and then maybe I'll sell it and buy a new one. I might get it. It was a taxi. Now it's an Uber or those short things. I think there's going to be many pieces inserted along the way. And those pieces are according to your need and your use at that time. So you need an Uber? Yes, I think Uber will continue to play that part. You need a car for a few hours to do shopping or something like that. Maybe you do car sharing. You need a car for a few days, you rent. You need it for a few weeks or a few months, subscribe, longer lease. And essentially, it's a continuum of time and the different products and how people use it within that time frames. hope that kind of wasn't very overarching and lofty by nature, but that's how we view the world. Now, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. It's an awesome space that you're in. I love listening to you and what you've built behind the scenes. It's a great achievement. Australians produce amazing tech startups and I feel like we've got another great one here and I wish you all the best with everything that you do and thank you once again for your time and knowledge in this space. Thanks, Savan. I really appreciate it and all the best for the podcast. This is The Bottom Line. 
a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.